Well, as we study the Gospel of John in the Bible, we are reminded that the Gospel of John is a platform to understand the entire Bible. That as we study the life and the teaching, the power, the miracles of Jesus, we remember that Jesus is the focus. Our triune God has presented Christ as our Savior in the center of this Bible. So we will see once again that there's many different threads and themes, not only through John 7, but threads and themes from John 7 that we could pick up through the whole Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, there's different ways that we can follow a certain thread, like a beautiful tapestry, as God is painting this majestic, beautiful picture for his people. Some of those threads throughout scriptures are covenants and testaments. Some of those threads are kings and kingdoms. Some of those threads are laws and families. Some of those threads through the Bible are defeats and victories. An often forgotten, neglected thread throughout Scripture is food and festivals that God had ordained. Not only the seasons, but God had ordained festivals to go along with the seasons that were not just about the seasons and not just about agriculture and the harvest, but no, they were in invitation an invitation for God's people to come back to him, an invitation for God's people to remember him, and an invitation for God's people to celebrate him. God knows the way that a human heart so, can so quickly get distracted, can so quickly get focused away from the creator, onto the creation, and we can spend not just days, weeks, maybe even years and decades before we come back to the Lord. So the Lord established these festivals. And in these festivals, there was always eating. There was always a lot of food. What we see in scripture is that food in the Bible is not only functional for nourishment. Food in the Bible was not only fun for pleasure, Food in the Bible was not only a sign of God's provision as a good father. Food in the Bible is not only used as a sign and a symbol to help us understand our faith, but food in the Bible, especially as God has instituted these festivals, was meant to bring God's people together, to connect them so that they would remember not only they have each other, but they are one family. They are one nation. They are one people, a holy nation set apart by God. When the Bible teaches us and commands us to gather, it is not only to celebrate, but it's to remember. So food serves a function. And that's why the prophet Isaiah would proclaim this to a generation that had lost sight of God's good grace and his blessings. He says this, and my goodness, if there was a time and a season when this invitation, this truth is more pertinent for the United States of America, it's now. Listen to this, Isaiah 55. The Lord says, come. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the water. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Listen, friends, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? 
and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Such a simple question, such a profound question. If we were really asking the question, everything would change. God says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves. Do we understand that our devotion to God isn't antithetical to delighting in God? finding true delight. He says, delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. There's a lot going on there. We can have ears, but not hear. We can be thirsty and yet be settling for things that can never satisfy. Do you understand that? There is a thirst in your soul that no water and no drink on this earth can satisfy. There is a thirst in your soul that your tongue and that your body, that your palate craves for more than just liquid. No, we crave and we need something deeper and something better, and thank God he has provided that. So the festivals were not only an invitation for people to come back, to remember and to celebrate God, but they were also foreshadowed of the one to come. They were a typology, a promise that one would arise from the line and lineage of David, and he would be the fulfillment of all the covenants. He would be the end of the law. Not to necessarily to say that the law no longer has a place, but that the law points to him. So there were seven festivals that God had instilled in our Jewish friends' culture, in the Old Scriptures, Old Testament Scriptures. The first one was Passover. The second, the festival of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread. First fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and now, as we're going to see in this passage, the feast of tabernacles. As Pastor Jim taught so well last week, this was a very, very important moment in the calendar year for any Jewish person, any Jewish family, they all had to ascend the hill, the holy hill, to what they call Zion, and gather in Jerusalem, where they would remember God's faithfulness to provide for them in the wilderness. So what they would do is they would create these tents. They were living in houses, but for seven days, they would create these tents. That would be a kind of a practical, tangible reminder that God provided for them, that God's promises were true even before they were in the promised land. And that's still the principle for us. Even as we wait for Christ's return or for the day where we see him face to face, even before we are in that promised land, his promises are always true. Why? Because the one who promised it is worthy and true. So here in the Feast of Tabernacles, we have Jesus Christ, who John chapter 1 verse 14 says, is the Word made flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14, six chapters earlier said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The actual word for dwelt is tabernacle. Jesus tented amongst us. God took on flesh. So here it is at the Feast of Tabernacles where people are living in these little tents. I always think of Ocean Grove. Do you ever ever go to Ocean Grove in the summertime and people are living in those tents? People are living in these tents 
And all of this, every single part of it, from not only the um, living apparatus, but even to the food and the water, all points to Jesus. He's in their midst, and they're going to miss him. Not just the Pharisees who want to arrest and kill him, but even the people. Let's take a look, shall we? Starting back at verse 25, what we're going to see here is there's a direct correlation to the views of the people and the views of the people and who are leading the people. The teaching, the self-righteous division of the Pharisees is trickling down to the crowd. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him, exclamation point. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? I mean, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him, listen friends, him you do not know. Wow. Verse 29, I know him, for I came from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pause right there and reflect on what we just heard. So there's a debate, there's a discussion after Jesus is teaching and after Jesus is performing miracles and after Jesus is healing people, the people are divided. The people are having a debate about the identity of Christ. And what's the debate about? Where Jesus came from. As you're going to see at the end of the passage, the Pharisees are going to say, did this man come from Galilee? Well, read the scriptures, read the prophets, the Messiah does not come from Galilee. He's supposed to come from the city of David, which is what? Bethlehem, right? But what Jesus does is he doesn't necessarily say, well, listen, friends, I did actually, I was actually born in Bethlehem. What he is going to do is he's going to take it deeper. He's going to talk about not necessarily the address that he was born. He's not going to point people to his mom. He's not going to talk about the manger scene. He's not going to give the business card of the innkeeper where they stayed, right? What he's going to do is talk about his real origin, which is from his father. Now, he says something startling. He says something shocking, and it needs to be communicated in every single church across the world. Is it possible to be at church and not know the heavenly father? Woo! What was happening was this wasn't just a synagogue gathering on the Sabbath. This was one of the big seven festivals of the entire year. People traveled for hundreds of miles. People are involved in the procession. They're involved in the traditions. They're involved in the rituals. And they're saying, where did this man come from? Who is this Jesus? And Jesus says, you know me because you're looking at me. He says something shocking. This is not to those pesky, feisty Pharisees yet. This is to the crowd. He says, you know me, but you don't know the one who sent me. Meaning that, my goodness, as they are trying 
to present to God this seeming superficial obedience to an Old Testament religious tradition. They don't even know the God that they're worshiping. Wow. A startling reminder for us that there's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. That difference is everything. That difference not only transcends head to heart, that difference transcends heaven and hell. Do we not only know about our Jesus, but do we know Jesus? Do we know the Father? One scholar, a theologian put it like this, our worship of God will rise no higher than our knowledge of God. Now, this doesn't mean religious trivia, right? Knowledge, of course, includes truths about God, but the greatest truth is to know him, to know him, to have relationship, devotion, love. What's the greatest commandment in all the Bible? To love the Lord your God with all of your what? Heart, all of your what? Mind, soul, and strength. We could be a church. We could even come for a chili cook-off and not know our God, not know our Heavenly Father, not know the one that all of these beautiful festivals and feasts point to. Now, it's an interesting thing. Our society looks at Jesus just from a historical point of view and cannot deny how much impact this singular man has had on history. In fact, most scholars would agree that Jesus is the most influential person who's ever lived. This son of a Jewish carpenter who had no army, who had no throne, who never wrote a book, even though the book about him is the best-selling book of all time every single year. What we see in Christ is this unique figure. So the truth is, is that our worship of God will rise no higher than our, our knowledge of God. And there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. To know Jesus is to know God. Amen? The opposite is also true. That's why a lot of these truths in John, although beautifully written, are offensive. Because not only will Jesus say, not just the apostles, not just John, not just the teaching of the prophets, Jesus himself will say, to know Jesus is to know God, and then the opposite is true. The opposite side of the coin is true. To not know Jesus is to not know God. And then all of a sudden, that slams in the face of our ideology today in this country, in this society. It's not just an idea to understand his significance in history. It means to know him. For example, Yale historian Yoroslav Pelikan put it like this. Regardless, detached, he says this. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. This Yale historian says, if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left as if to say not much. Author and historian H.G. Wells, who himself you'll hear wasn't a Christian, said this, he admitted this, H.G. Wells says, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture of history centering irresistibly around the life and the character of this most significant man, Jesus Christ. 
the historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? By this test, H.G. Wells says, Jesus stands first. Not only do we have the witness of the Old Testament prophets, not only do we have the witness of the entire Bible, not only do we have the witness of history and Jesus' impact on societies and nations, but in the end, it will be a decision that each of you have to make, each of us has to make, each of us has to wrestle with. Do I know about Jesus or do I know Jesus? Have I for too long settled for a thin superficial religion when the most important relationship that I was made for is not a part of my life? The story continues here in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring, murmuring these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said and said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. Verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, I'm in verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. I want you to envision this in your mind's eye. Okay, envision the scene. It's in Jerusalem. Thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of Jews. Jesus stands up on the great day. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What we see here in this passage is once again, not only a discussion of where Jesus came from, but when he says, you can't go where I'm going, then it's a discussion of where he's going. Not only did they miss it as far as his origin, they are also missing it as far as his destination. They think, once again, he's going to the dispersion. So in your conversations with people, how often have you noticed, because I knew this was true of me, before I started to really study the scripture, before I really started to dive deep into the truth of God, how many of us believed outright mistruths and fallacies about Jesus but we thought we were totally right. Meaning that when people come to you and say, well, Chris, I don't really believe in organized religion. What they mean by that is to say, all right, they have some kind of spiritual element in their life, but they don't want to recognize any kind of organized, top-down, heavy rule system, whatever. So I often say, okay, well, tell me about what you think Christianity is. And then they start going into detail about what they think Christianity is. And then I love telling them and say, yeah, I don't believe in that either. I don't. Here's what I do believe in. A God who created everything good. A God who created everything very good. Beautiful. And now, because of our rebellion, because of our hubris, because it wasn't enough to be made in the image of God, we wanted to be God. There's a disconnect between our good father. Out of love for you and of love for us, 
He gave the greatest gift any father could give. He gave his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived the life that I did not. Jesus Christ died the death that I deserved. Jesus Christ overcame death in a way that I never could. Because of my sin, I need Jesus. Because of my fragile, finite life, I need his victory over death. When we make it about Jesus, when we make the message centralized and focused as Christ, the anchor, then all of a sudden, a lot of these other things tend to wash away. You see, Jesus tells them, he reminds them, he proclaims to them that even this feast of tabernacles points to him, that it's all about him. So the Feast of Tabernacles, what they would do is not only live in these tents, but there was a water libation ceremony where they would take from the pool of Siloam a chalice and to symbolize the depths of God's grace, they would fill water from the pool of Siloam. And as a procession, they would march up to the Temple Mount and then the high priest or someone from the Sanhedrin would stand above the altar and they would pour water over the altar as a sign and a symbol and a hope that one day the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth even as the seas have filled the oceans. And as they poured the water over, it was an expectation of one to come who would usher in this new kingdom. Do you see the irony here? Jesus points at this water libation ceremony. Jesus is in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles as the one who tabernacled amongst us, and they're missing him. They're missing it. Jesus probably at the great day of the feast is pointing at the procession. He's probably pointing at this water libation ceremony, and he's saying, believe in me. Believe in me, and then rivers of living water will flow out of you. Do you get this? How amazing is your Bible? You ready? The Feast of Tabernacles, God dwelling with his people, now points to Jesus who dwelt among us. And then he says what? The reason why he died and the reason why he ascended is so that God could tabernacle in us. God, his Holy Spirit, could dwell in us. And once the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then all of a sudden, all that decay and all of that death of man-made, man-centered religion starts to crack and fall away. And there's what? Life. There's freedom. There's joy and there's love. But my goodness, we will settle for religion seven days a week. And that's why the temptation for many of us is not atheism. It's not. A lot of us, it's not, it's not that. The temptation for us is to settle for a smaller Jesus. It's to say, God, you have given us Christ. And he says, if you believe in me, there will be living waters that flow from us. I think I'd rather just pretend. I think I'd rather just go through the motions. I think I'd rather just give Jesus the scraps. Jesus says, if you believe. So think of it this way. I mentioned food was a thread throughout Scripture. Think of it this way. In the Garden of Eden, God creates everything good, right? He says, you can eat of anything in the garden except for what? That tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat of its forbidden fruit. And sure enough, that slithering, lying serpent arrives. 
And what does he say? What are the first things out of his mouth? Did God really say? That plays itself out in our society over and over and over again. Ad nauseum. He hasn't changed his ploys. Did God really say? And then he extends out the forbidden fruit. Listen to this imagery. I want you to connect what that lying, slithering serpent Satan says and what Jesus says to you. He says, you will surely not die. In fact, you will become like God. Take and eat. And then what does our Jesus do? In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever partakes of me will not die, but have everlasting life. Now he says, whoever drinks, whoever has the Holy Spirit in him will have rivers of life. So this lying serpent says, take and eat. You will be like God. You will not die. And what does Jesus say? Pointing to himself. Take, eat, drink, because I am God, and I'm going to die for you. This is such good news. And it's good news that the Pharisees couldn't understand, didn't have ears to understand. Let's conclude our study briefly as we read verse 40 through 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man, exclamation point. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, I mean, can you hear their condescension? But this crowd that does not even know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning of what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So in the end, we have a decision to make, friends. Do we follow tradition? Do we follow these false teachers? Or do we follow our good shepherd, Jesus Christ? Tragically, many of the people, even though they probably had a love-hate relationship with the Pharisees, would choose religion as opposed to choosing these living waters. So, in their condescension, the Pharisees say, we're the guardians of the law. We know the law. We know the Bible better than you. Did some of us grow up in traditions like this? I hope we're connecting these dots. Because many of us, we won't turn to the Bible. We won't turn to Jesus. We will just trust in men like this. When we come to Christ, we come to him hungry and thirsty for truth. When we come to Christ, we come to him knowing that he is the good shepherd and everyone and anything that is good points to him. So here is my last hope for you, is that you would truly believe in Jesus and be filled with this beautiful Holy Spirit. I like how one author put it, Robert Murray McShane, talking about the rivers of life. He said, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. 
dive and dive again, you will never come to the bottom of these depths. R.A. Turi put it like this, Never was there such a glorious banquet spread on earth as this which God spreads to you and me in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And then Samuel Chadwick says, Spirit-filled souls are ablaze for God. They love with a love that glows. They serve with a faith that kindles. They serve with a devotion that consumes. They hate sin with a fierceness that burns. And they rejoice with a joy that radiates. Love is perfected in the fire of God. If you're tired of man-made, man-centered, superficial religion, come back to the Father. Be filled with the Spirit. And may He be your burning passion, even as He satisfies your deepest thirsts. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good, gracious Father. And we pray that you give us the courage now by your Spirit, and it has to be your Spirit. It's not a work that we can conjure up. It's not anything that I can do or we can do. So may we hear the words of Christ penetrating our hearts, demolishing the strongholds in our minds, leading us to truly want, truly crave, truly thirst Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time ever and maybe for the first time in a long time. But this means simply this. To drink of Jesus means we stop going to the broken cisterns of the world. To drink of Jesus means we dive deep into the truth of God and Scripture. To drink of Jesus means that we are poured into so we can be poured out to a world that is parched, a world that is weary, a world that is exhausted and it needs to know the inexhaustible grace of God. Friends, if this is you this morning, this beautiful January morning, would you return back to the Father? Know Him. Would you return back to the Father? Love Him. And would you return back to the Father and be filled with His Spirit? Believe. Believe in Christ. He is worthy of it. He is faithful. And He is true. Pray this simple prayer if you need a guide. These words only matter. if It's the Holy Spirit and your heart crying out to God. Father, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for the ways that I settle for the world. And I am not been thirsty for you. Fill me with your spirit, God, please. Change my desires, even as you change my eternity. Grant me the grace, God, to follow your son, Jesus Christ. In his good name we pray. Amen.